Good morning. The sermon text for today is Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And you can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1441. You know, as I pre-read the scriptures before I come up, there are some Sundays I go, hmm, <laughs> what treasure is the pastor going to find in this one this week? And this one has me curious. I can't wait to see what we're digging out of this one this week. This is a great treasure hunt. So listen as I read God's word. Zerubbabel, the Lord's signet ring. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Here ends the reading. All right, well, I guess we're going to begin this treasure hunt then that Sherry was talking about. Um, go ahead and grab a Bible if you haven't opened it already to Haggai chapter 2. We are finally here. We have finally reached the end of Haggai. Five weeks, two chapters, and I don't know about you, I, I've really liked it. So I'm just going to kind of rest in that. But uh, it, it's been hard. Like I, I set out and I told you guys this is going to be a challenging text, but we've been able to mine the depths of God's word for us. We've been able to walk with these people through some pretty challenging circumstances, but I think we've realized through doing this that we're actually uh, a lot like them, right? As we've wrestled through their heart posture, their, their fears and their, their struggles, their joys and, and their challenges, like there's been a lot that I've been able to identify with and I, and I hope you felt the same way uh, as well. Today's gonna be no different, but, but if you're here this morning in person or online and, and you're kind of just joining us and, and this is the first Haggai sermon uh, you're hearing or maybe you've missed a few in the midst of the sermon series, uh, I definitely encourage you to go back and check out the ones previous to this. But if you're wondering, okay, this is kind of an obscure text, kind of a challenging text. Is there something in here for me? My answer is, is an abundant yes. There's some really good stuff in the text for us this morning. So I'd encourage you to invest in understanding this and, and get your eyes on the scripture because God, as we said, will accomplish uh, his will exactly through, uh, through the word that he has given us as, he were, as he's revealed himself. So let me pray for us uh, and then we're gonna dig in and, and treasure hunt. So, Father, we praise you and, and we thank you for bringing us to this point in, in finishing Haggai. We ask that this portion of your word would solidify in our minds, that it would settle into our hearts and that it would express itself through our hands. As we finish this text today, Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this time, that you would help us to understand and respond appropriately. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. May we rejoice in that this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you all, if, you, if you've ever had a moment where you felt like you were completely out of control, a moment where you felt like you no longer had a say what was going on with you or your circumstances, with your body, with, with your life. A moment where, where you were simply along for the ride and whatever happened, happened. 
One of the scenarios where I've experienced this semi-regularly um, was in the athletic sphere. Most of you know this about me, but uh, my sport of choice growing up and that, that shaped much of my life was uh, gymnastics. And uh, that's how I got up to Minnesota in the first place, coming up to uh, compete in college. And in the sport of gymnastics, there, there's a concept um, that is called air sense. And air sense is exactly what it sounds like. It's where you have a sense uh, of what in the world is going on in the air. It's, it's an awareness of where the ceiling is and, and where the floor is in the middle of a skill, where you know how many flips you're doing, where you know how many twists you're doing, so on and so forth. And so gymnasts take the time to actually develop the skill. Usually it's on a trampoline and involves involves fun things like foam pits and all of that. But you build that muscle memory. You build that skill into yourself. But sometimes you're doing a skill and, and things get pretty sketchy uh, uh, pretty quick, where for one reason or another, you lose track of where you're at. Gymnasts call this, quote unquote, uh, getting lost. And in that moment, for an athlete who trains their whole life to have control over their body, you experience a severe lack of control. And there are very few moves that you can make before you hit the ground. You don't know what's up, you don't know what's down, and you are completely lost. The only thing that you actually can rest assured of in the midst of that moment is that gravity works and that at some point it's going to bring you crashing down. So you have to figure out what happens before you hit the floor. Now, I know many of us haven't had that experience. Maybe if you've spent enough time on a trampoline or you've done diving, you've, you, you've kind of had that moment. But needless to say, I think many of us have experienced moments where, where we feel out of control. Kind of a, a neutral example of this is for any of us who have spent time on a roller coaster, right? If you go on a roller coaster, you're strapped in, you're going to the peak of that, that first drop where you're going to build all of that momentum and you get to the top and you look down and you realize that you no longer have control about what's going to happen for about the next 20 to 30 seconds and you're in it for better or for worse and you go down. But there are some more serious examples in our life where we feel like we are lacking control. Maybe for some of us, we've experienced that in, in the, the realm of health, where you have an illness or you have a malady that you did not bring on yourself. It's something that, that, that came about and, and you don't know what to do about it. The doctors don't know what to do about it. It's something that is, is, is chronic, but, but you don't have the power to make it go away and you simply need to find ways to handle it or to deal with it. And you're looking for hope in the midst of it. Some of us have felt a lack of control when it comes to our, our finances, sometimes due to our own spending, but sometimes because of things that have happened to us. Right? Some of us get scammed at times. Some, some people experience identity theft and, and fraudulent activity. Some of us have invested in something and it, it hasn't really worked out the way that we expected it. And in those moments where we have circumstances and we realize, oh no, I'm not in control of what's going on anymore, that can be scary. That can be really, really troubling and it can be really frustrating. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that, that God's word has some good stuff in it for us today. And I want you to know that God knows where you're at. And none of that is a surprise to him. We're finally coming to the end of Haggai, as I said. And, and I think we're in a perfect place to just take a moment to look back and see where we have been. Because I think it's really clear that the people that we've been walking through this text with that are in the text are really, really complicated. They're kind of in a sense of tug of war with God. Right? Where, where they come back after 70 years of exile, some of them born in the midst of that exile, and they come back and they're getting their lives set up and they never 
they never finish building the temple. And so after 15 years, God kind of tugs on them and he says, guys, you need to get this done if you're gonna experience my blessings. And so they do, they start the whole building process and then soon discouragement sets in, right? They, they look at the temple and they say, this isn't gonna be what it once was, God. Like, why should I continue to do this? And God says, no, 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 you're still my people. I still love you. Your job is to build. I will bring the glory. I will make this latter temple greater than the first temple and I will bring peace. Then finally, last week, Benjamin walked us through a little bit more of this text and actually a really challenging portion of Haggai where, where Haggai gives a parable specifically to some of the priests and he helps them to see that this building project is about more than just their actions, right? Because God wants all of them. He wants their hearts. He wants their minds. He wants them to be whole and holy, devoted to him. And so right at the end of, of our section last week, when it seems as if they've turned to him to some degree, we read this promise in verse 19. God says to them, from this day on, I will bless you. And it's in that, it's as they turn to him completely, they find that as they're completely dependent upon him, they find that they have everything they need. And it comes from his blessing and his blessing alone. But as we've tracked through Haggai, one of the things that we've done is we've talked about the people a lot as a whole. But I don't want us to forget the leaders of this group that are actually overseeing this group that honestly have to deal with a lot of the ups and downs of these exiles. And, and, and we have Joshua, the, the high priest. We have Haggai, the prophet. And we've talked a little bit about those. But we also have Zerubbabel, the governor. And if you were here for the first sermon on Haggai, one of the things I noted was that uh, Zerubbabel is not just an ordinary governor. Right? He is the heir to King David's throne, Israel's beloved king. But here's the problem he faces. The problem is that his circumstances, they do not match his royal heritage. Because instead of being king, he's just this kind of undergovernor of the kingdom of Persia, who has conquered him and who has conquered his people. How frustrating must that be for him? To be a part of these people who God made the promises to, and they're not seeing these promises yet come to fruition. And yet today, today, the end of today's text is about God making a promise specifically to Zerubbabel. And he encourages him and he helps Zerubbabel see this, that it is okay that he is not king. It is okay that he is not in control over everything that is going on around him. In fact, it is better that God is in control at the end of the day. And that's where it's gonna land for us this morning. As we see this, that God's sovereign control is where we find rest in every season. God's sovereign control is where we find rest in every single season. So today we're gonna break this text down into two parts. Let's look at the first three verses together, verses 20 to 22. So the word of the Lord comes to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. So this is going on, at the, if you remember last week's sermon, this is a second word that comes at the very same time as that one. Haggai speaks to one group and then he speaks to Zerubbabel. Here's what he says, verse 21. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. So here's what we start with seeing. We see that there is a message of coming judgment. So God tells this governor 
that he is about to quite literally shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake things up on a worldwide scale. And if you've been here through our sermon series, then then this word shake uh, should actually be very familiar to you. We saw it in in the beginning of chapter 2. If you need a reminder, here's where it is. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. So where earlier in chapter two, God gave very specific promises to the people. He promised to bring glory and he promised to bring peace. But here he adds another promise to these people. He says, not only is there gonna be glory and peace, there's something else coming as well. There is judgment. And you might say, okay, Matt, how does peace and, and judgment then coexist in that. And I don't have time to sort all of that out. The short answer is I don't think that there can be any true and lasting peace unless God enacts his judgment and brings about true justice. But one of the things we talked about before was this, that the, the prophets, yes, sometimes they look forward to the future. Yes, sometimes they speak into the present. But one of the things the prophets love to do is they love to recycle language from what we have seen previously in the scriptures. And what is going on here is Haggai is hearkening us back to Exodus. I'm just gonna pull up a few Exodus passages so we can see how similar the language is. So Exodus 15, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back on them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Chapter 14, he says, during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud of the Egyptians army and threw it into confusion. And then uh, chapter 14, verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. So what I want us to see is how similar this is to the language that Haggai is using. This idea of overthrowing chariots and their horses. Just as the Lord threw them into confusion during the Exodus, it says each will fall by the sword of his brother. Clearly there's a sense of confusion amongst God's enemies. And so we see Haggai using very old imagery in order to communicate something to Zerubbabel. And the question is, what is that? Well, what he's communicating is that just as he brought about a first exodus, one day he will bring about another. That the injustices and the dynamics that Zerubbabel's experiencing, they will not last forever. That in the same way God fought for his people Israel then in Egypt, one day he will go to war for them again. Now imagine Zerubbabel hearing that. Remember, this is first a message to him, not to us, to him first, right? Think about how challenging his role must be. As he's one of the first ones on the ground after the exile, He's had to walk through this with with all of these people. He's had to deal with their best moments and with their worst moments, right? And he is ultimately the one responsible for overseeing them. But more than all of that, he's a governor of this district. He's the one who has has the the line of a king, and yet he's just kind of this under-shepherd, you might call it. Right? He doesn't have any real sense of power. He's under the per- Persia's authority. He doesn't have any a real sense of, of standing here. In fact, he's quite powerless when we consider what he actually has the ability to do based on his own decision-making. And it's into that sense of powerlessness that God speaks. And God tells him, you may be powerless, but I am not, right? He tells him that these Persians may oversee you now, but I 
I'm over them. And one day I will call to account not only every wicked thing that they have done, but every wicked deed that has been done by any nation. See, the point is that history is going in a direction and it is being directed. And when it comes to its end, the promise of the text is that justice will be satisfied. That is what the Exodus imagery is doing, where they send plagues on those who oppressed God's people. That's what God did, right? Where he overthrew one of the world's greatest superpowers and he saw the people through to dry land and he vanquished his enemies, just like it says will happen here in the Haggai text. This is the picture that is being utilized in order to encourage Zerubbabel in his present moment, that just as the people went free from his past, one day all of God's people will go free. So for him, here's what he's hearing. Zerubbabel, your feeling of powerlessness, your feeling of frustration, it's real, it's valid, but it is not permanent. And I think that that feeling of powerlessness is something that we oftentimes can relate to. Because we like to feel like we are in control, don't we? We like to feel like we kind of have our ducks in a row, like we have things together. But sometimes we're reminded by our situation that we're really not. Sometimes no matter how hard we push on the wall, the wall doesn't move. Sometimes no matter how much we want this burden to lift, it is still there. And we experience this in a whole number of ways. I mentioned in the beginning when we're wrestling with our health, right? But some of us have experienced this vocationally. Maybe you've been laid off from a job. And you have no power over whether you are able to keep that role that you're in. During kind of the COVID season, I know many people's, uh, the dynamics of their role changed at their job, where they were working in the office and now they've been forced to, to work remotely or kind of in a hybrid model. And that's not your preference and you don't have a choice over it. Some of us might feel that politically, right? Where you feel like no matter how much I vote, no matter how much I'm involved and advocate for certain legislation, things just don't change. I feel powerless to make an impact. One of the ways that Holly and I have experienced this recently has been in parenting, right? Danny has gone from barely being able to lift his head to like he's running around the house and he's crawling on everything that I can possibly find. And I used to have a sense of of power over the decisions that he makes. And now I turn around and he's standing on the windowsill. Like I I legitimately don't have any power over what's going on almost. It's, It's terrifying. But I think what this text is communicating is that your powerlessness, our powerlessness, is not a hindrance to God because God's plans do not depend on your power. They never have, they don't now, and and, and they never will. And that's actually good news because it means that we do not have to go through life fighting for a sense of control that we never actually had to begin with. And it frees us to rest in his good sovereignty over our families, over our communities, over our nation, over our world. It frees us to know that when there is an injustice done, if it is not righted in this life, it will be righted when his kingdom comes. And so we just get to delight in participating in God's plans and purposes and in, in a relationship with him without having to fear, am I going to make or break what God is trying to do here? Because we are not the decisive factor. One of the simple ways we can summarize this is that we are responsible for how we obey in our moment-to-moment situations, but he is responsible for where we're headed. And that is good news that we can rest in.
And so God encourages Zerubbabel with where history is headed. He gives him this big grand scale in verses 20 to 22. But now he really zooms in. He really focuses on personally speaking to this man in this last verse. So look with me at the very last verse of Haggai, kind of the climax of the text where he says, on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. So we go from this coming judgment to this promise of restoration that God gives to Zerubbabel. Now on the surface, we we read this, and I think we can obviously tell this is a uh, somewhat positive ending here, right? We get that this is supposed to be good news for Zerubbabel, but I think to understand just the depth of what is going on, the, the, the depth of how good this news is, one of the things that's really important that we understand is what a signet ring is. So I'm gonna assume that nobody knows anything about signet rings. If you do, then this might be a review for you, but that's okay. So here's a picture of a signet ring. And this is an Egyptian one, but uh, it, it serves the purpose nonetheless. What a signet ring is, it's literally a ring that would mark a document. And when that document was marked with the ring, it would signal that the owner of the ring had given their authority and endorsement to whatever was being stamped. It's the equivalent of kind of a signature for us today, right? Where we take a contract or something like it and we sign it and our signature represents the fact that we endorse whatever is in that contract. That's exactly what a signet ring does, except for instead of signing with a pen, you would stamp it with your ring. And so God tells Zerubbabel that he's going to be like his signet ring to encourage him that he is the one that will one day bear his seal of authority. So that's good. That's good news. But this gets way more awesome, guys. I want to show you a text. So there's even more goodness to this when we understand the history that is leading up to what God is, is telling Zerubbabel. So on the, on the screen right now is a text from uh, Jeremiah chapter 22. And this is a text describing a moment from, when, uh, from King Jehoiakim before uh, the, the Judeans went into exile. And here's what God says to King Jehoiakim. He says, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, try saying that 10 times fast, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would pull you off. So King Jehoiakim in this text, before the exile, is compared to a signet ring just like Zerubbabel, except for where in our text, the signet language is overall positive. It's clearly not here, right? God is trying to tell Jehoiakim that he doesn't approve of him that if he were a signet ring, that God would tear him off and throw him away. In fact, God is going to throw him into exile. But here's where this text gets super interesting. Are you ready? Listen very carefully. Like this is the, the best part of this whole text, okay? Listen very carefully. You might, you might wonder, how does that relate to this? Okay, how do these things connect? Here's how. That exile that Jehoiakim went into is the same one that Zerubbabel came out of, led the people out of. And Jehoiakim is Zerubbabel's grandfather. And so do you see what's happening? What's going on is under this king, Jehoiakim, Zerubbabel's grandfather, God is saying, in my judgment, because you have disobeyed me, I am giving you and the line of David over to exile. And yet what he speaks to this lowly governor from the same line, he says to him that Zerubbabel under you, I will once again establish that line in Jerusalem and you will bear my authority. What an awesome thing. Like what an awesome thing for him to hear. 
to be called my servant in his lowly position. And if you know the, the servant language throughout the Hebrew Bible, that's usually language that's used for someone that is important to God, that is prominent. And so clearly the, the Lord is looking at him and seeing his faithfulness in the present circumstances. But then to be told that one day he will be a sign of God's authority, that one day, Zerubbabel, you will actually be the symbol of my loving promises to my people. Think about that. He is going from puppet of Persia to God telling him, you are my asset, right? That, that you might not have the role of David, but you have my same endorsement that David had. Just, just grapple with that with me. How must that make him feel to know that he has been chosen specifically? To, to, just to think about how that must have impacted his, his role in the present, how he saw himself. Because remember, the text says on that day, this is something that God tells Zerubbabel and it hasn't happened to him yet. But what a boost that must have given him. How that future hope would have encouraged his present way of life. Now in a minute, we're gonna consider this prophecy's fulfillment. But, but what I want us to think about just for a moment is the value of this message in its own context first. Because one of the things I've tried to emphasize for us is that the prophets and prophecy are not about uh, this idea that there's something to be decoded. Right? They are a message to God's people to call them to repentance and to call them to faithfulness in their present. So what did this message have for Zerubbabel in his present situation? I think it was this. I think it was a message to him that told him that he mattered to God. He was telling him that the value of his life, no matter how he felt, was more than being a cog in a machine and that God was not blind what was going on with his people. God was not blind to Zerubbabel's oversight. In fact, he would honor it. And yet he promised him that the best is yet to come. And all he had to go on was he knew who God was and he had an idea of what God had done because he went on from here and he continued to be governor. God made this promise to him and his role did not change. It was the posture of his heart that was being forced to change in the midst of the situation, knowing that God was trustworthy. See, the Bible is a story of God constantly telling his people that the best is yet to come. But that's not always easy to believe, is it? That's not always easy to hold on to, especially when, when we know the promises that God has made, and there's this span of time before we see them come to fruition. And it leaves us asking really important and thoughtful but difficult questions. Like, does God actually care about my situation and what I'm going through? It can leave us asking God things like, God, I know you care about life, but do you care about my life? And God, I know that you have a plan, but how can what I actually see in front of me fit into your plans? But what Hag the end of Haggai and all of Haggai, for that matter, is continually showing us is that our assurance for what's to come is found in nothing else but in who God is. Because the assurance that we have is only as good as the one delivering the message, right? And so if it was someone other than God delivering the message, then of course we would be right to question it. But what did the scriptures tell us about God? That he is unchanging, his character never changes, that he is always good, that he's all-knowing, so nothing's gonna surprise him, that he's all-powerful, so nothing is going to thwart his plans. And so if we believe 
who God has revealed himself to be in scripture, then here's what we find, that he is indeed trustworthy with our future, that he is indeed worthy of handing over control. But as we finish, here's here's the question I want us to ask as we close this morning in Haggai. We'll ask about the fulfillment. Did God ever make good on this promise within a short time? Because we talked about this. Sometimes the prophets will give a prophecy and then very quickly, actually, they will give a fulfillment to it. And sometimes there's a greater fulfillment. But let's ask the immediate question. Was this promise to Zerubbabel ever fulfilled in his lifetime? Well, here's what we know. We do know that God used Zerubbabel to help finish the temple. If you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you can track with some of that and look at Zechariah as well. We also saw that God uh, saw this governor through, leading these people faithfully through a difficult season. We also know that generally speaking, he had a lasting legacy among the Jewish people. Here's some evidence of that. This is from uh, the book of Sirach, which is a text uh, that is written between the Old and the New Testament. Here's what it said. How shall we praise Zerubbabel? He was like a signet ring on the right hand. So we see that during the, what we call the intertestamental period, that, that Zerubbabel is being thought well of. They're using some of this signet language. So there's some semblance of fulfillment where Zerubbabel clearly receives the endorsement of God and is endorsed among his people. But I don't think that this text ever came to complete fulfillment. And here's why. Look at verse 23. On that day. On that day is when God is going to fulfill these things to Zerubbabel. What day? What day is it talking about? Well, the day that talks about in in 20 to, to 22. The day when God overthrows the kingdoms. The day when God enacts his judgment on a cosmic scale. And here's the thing. That never happened in Zerubbabel's lifetime. There was no event so cataclysmic as this that we can clearly look at it and say that was the fulfillment. So what would have happened? This would have left God's people with a sense of wonder. It would have left them with a sense of anticipation where they're asking the question, when will this promise come to fulfillment? When will the nations be overthrown? When will this king from the line of David and the line of Zerubbabel, the the greater Zerubbabel, come and finally take the throne as our leader? When will this great exodus event take place? See, here's the problem that God's people are dealing with here. They're back in the land and they're experiencing symptoms of exile. They're in the right location and yet their hearts are still sick. And they're finding that being in the right place could not make them faithful to God. So they're saying, there must be more to come. There must be something else that happens. And the reality is, at the end of the day, that that is not a unique problem to them. We find that our hearts are sick as well, that naturally they are postured away from God unless he does something. And there is no place that we can go that will fix that. There is no, ma- there's no uh, medicine that we can buy that will fix our, our malady, that will fix this going on within us. And there's nothing that we can do that will merit enough righteousness to overturn our standing before God. And so if the wrongs in us and in our world are going to be righted, we find that this is only something that God can do. And so just like these people, we are forced to ask these questions. When will this take place? When will this king show up? When will there be this greater exodus? What we find is 500 years after this text was written, we start to get this glimmer of hope when there's this baby born named Jesus, right? 
And he is from Zerubbabel's line. He is the one who also has the right to David's throne. Read Matthew 1 and, and Luke 3 if you want more details on that. And he grows up and he goes on mission and he calls disciples to himself. And in Luke 9, we read a very interesting text. In Luke 9, this is known as the transfiguration. And on the transfiguration, Jesus takes a few of his disciples up on the mountain and his glory is revealed to them. And the father speaks out of heaven, affirming the son. And Jesus is in this conversation with Moses and Elijah. It's a very mind-bending text, but listen what happens. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he's praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So our, our, our English translations do a great job at, at translating this, looking at that last part, speaking about his departure. But here's what the Greek says, that they spoke about the exodus that he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was about to go and fulfill the great exodus that God's people have been looking forward to. The great exodus that we all need, where we are not just set physically free, but we are set completely free from this bondage to sin and the great enemy death. Jesus was coming to bring about a revolution where we were changed from the inside out. And so he gives his life in our place perfectly and without sin. And he, instead of crushing his enemies, he dies in their place. He dies in our place and he rises three days later to validate the claims of who he is and to conquer death itself you see what's going on in Jesus is we actually see God taking on flesh to fulfill the very promise that he had made to Zerubbabel in this text and so I want to encourage us today I want to invite us today as always to trust in that and the promise that he makes to us is that he's not only going to change what we do Right in Haggai, we have seen that God cares more about actions. He had come to bring us a new identity. He's coming to change who we are. And in Christ, we become sons and daughters of God. We are beloved. We are holy. We are new. We are righteous. We are accepted. We are forgiven. And so he invites us to be people who trust in the fact that we don't need to have control because he does. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that that is the very best thing for all of us. So I want to encourage us in the way that, that God encouraged Zerubbabel. He told Zerubbabel that the best was yet to come. And that's where I want us to land this morning. That in Jesus, the seal of approval has been put on the one from the line of David. It has been put upon Jesus. And in Christ, we find that the best is still yet to come. Because the scriptures tell us when we get to Revelation that the rest of this prophecy will be fulfilled where Jesus comes and he is not coming just to establish forgiveness for his people, but it is to enact judgment. It's to put every enemy under his feet. It's to make justice perfect in the world. When Jesus comes, there will be no one who is able to say it ought to be this way because everything will be as it should be. In God's kingdom, we find that he'll dwell with his people that we will see him as he is, where we, we will love consistently and unending and there will be no more injustice, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more toil. That is a compelling vision, guys. But I think it's more than that. I think that this vision of what's to come should motivate the way that we live now. It should shape the type of people that we become in the power of God's spirit.
And so every week, we've been talking about one of the main themes of Haggai is that God's people would consider something. So we've been giving you a consider as you come to the Lord's table today. Here's what I want us to consider. I want us to consider the Lord's return. I want us to think about him coming back. And I want us to ask ourselves, before we come to communion today, what type of people ought we to be in light of his return? How should his coming kingdom change the way that I live now? How should it inform how I see myself, how I treat those around me? How should it inform the way that I relate to God and trust him in every situation? How should it inform the way that I am willing to relinquish all control and, and, and acknowledge my powerlessness before a God who is all-powerful and promises to bring his good kingdom in Christ one day? I want us to think about that. I want us to reflect on the Lord's return and some of the things that we've seen throughout this sermon series as a whole. Let's take a minute to, to consider those, meditate on those, and then I'll close us in prayer as we come to the table. Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and in word and deed by the things that we've done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess that sometimes we strive to maintain control of our lives, even though we have no real control. And Lord, sometimes in in moments where things happen to us, we doubt. We struggle to hold firm to you, to have faith, to have believing loyalty in who you are and that you are the Lord Almighty. Lord, would you give us faith? Would Would you give us eyes to see what you are going to do one day? And would you help us to rest in that? Would you cause us to be a people who completely entrust ourselves, our families, our our communities, our nation, our world to you, knowing that whatever you have is better than anything that we could come up with. And so Lord, in your mercy, forgive what we have been, please. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we might delight in your will so we might walk in your ways and we might look forward to when your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, all to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.